All right, welcome to our Bible Bee study for 2022. We are going through the book of Ruth together this year. And um, I want to give you this morning some introduction, like an overview to the entire book of Ruth. And then we're going to try to, for each one of our four studies that we have planned, we're going to try to cover one chapter uh, of the four chapters of the book of Ruth. So this study will do chapter one along with the introduction. And then for each successive study, we'll do, we'll do chapters two, three, and four. Um, to give you an idea for those of you who are taking notes, how I'm going to be dividing up the chapter for our study, we're going to be doing an introduction first, and then we're going to do the short section in verses 1 through 5, and I'm calling that section Naomi in Moab, and then we're going to do um, chapter 1, verses 6 through 18, a little bit larger section, and I'm going to call that section Ruth's Refusal. And then a third and final section, which is verses 19 through 22, just a small section, but an important one. And we're going to call that Arrival in Bethlehem. So let me go ahead. I think we'll have time this year, uh, some years, because of the, uh, the material we've done. We haven't been able to read the chapter before we did the study. But I think I'll do that for each one of these chapters. The chapters are not long. Uh, this first chapter is only, uh, you know, like 22 verses. So uh, if you'll just pay attention as I read through the chapter, and then we'll dig into the introduction and the, the chapter itself. Ruth 1.1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will, you, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they have grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. 
And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. and There will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. All right, a little bit of an introduction, an overview of the book, some some practical information to set the stage for what we're going to be studying, and some uh, some spiritual perspective before we actually get to these portions to help you remember what it is that we're going to be looking for as we work our way through the book. First, on a practical note, uh, the book of Ruth was written at a very important time in Israel's history, but it was not the best of times. It was not an ideal time. It was written, as uh, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 1, it was written during the same time that's described in, in what we know as the book of Judges. This was a, a time period in Israel's history where the children of Israel have been brought by the Lord's hand, his saving and delivering hand, out of Egypt. They've, they've uh, survived the wilderness journey. They've entered into the promised land. They've conquered the promised land during the days of Joshua. They've settled the land. And now Moses died, of course, in the wilderness. Joshua has now died. And we've moved into the next phase of Israel's history. But it's not a particularly healthy phase because we're told in the book of Judges that just a single generation after Joshua died, the the great leader of the Israelites, that the children of Israel began to drift from the right ways of the Lord. And there is a a single description in the book of Judges that tells us, uh, and, and we can find that at the very end of the book of Judges, there's a single description that says that this time period in Israel's history was characterized by there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right, in his own eyes. So the people of the Lord are not doing what's right in the Lord's eyes. They're doing what's right in their own opinions, their own estimations. And so you have a lot of confusion and a a, a lot of spiritual turmoil in terms of what's going on during this time period. So this story of the book of Ruth takes place during the same time as the events of the book of Judges. Now the question is, Why is the book of Ruth in the Bible? What significance does it hold? We're told in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1, that God has, throughout history, spoken to his people at different times and in many different ways. 
So there are different portions of Scripture that God is speaking through. He speaks through every portion of Scripture, but he speaks differently in different portions of Scripture. For instance, we have the, the what we call redemptive history, which is the story of history, but through God's eyes. And these are in the narrative portions of Scripture, meaning just telling the story of what happened at that time in history. So Ruth is one of those kinds of communication from the Lord. It's history. It's real history. These are real people and real events that actually happened. But it's redemptive history in the sense that God is revealing to us not just this is history, but he's revealing to us what he was at work to accomplish and to do during that particular moment in history. It's a little bit different, though, than studying a portion of the law of God or studying in the book of Psalms or studying in the book of Proverbs. Each portion of scripture is God communicating to us, but communicating in a different way. And so we're going to study it as we should, which is special redemptive history. Now, there are five main reasons why this particular history is included in God's Word. I'm going to give you just, and we'll be highlighting each one of these as we go through our study over these next four weeks. But here are, from my perspective, the five reasons why God told this story to us in the way that he did. One, as I said, it's history, but it's a very small slice of history. It's not the history of all of Israel. It's not the history of the whole world. It's the history of one single family in God's special purposes for that family. And I take great encouragement from that idea for myself in that God is a God over the entire universe. He is a God over the entire world. He is a God over all of the nations and individual nations. He is a God of great events and great moments in history. But he's also a God of families. He's a God of of a special and connected relationship to those families that acknowledge him, that recognize him, that know him, that believe in him, that trust in him, that follow him. And so this is that slice of history where God is shown to be powerfully at work in the story of one single family. Second reason why this is particularly important is that, oh, and I should say this about the family idea before we move to the second reason. And that is that it just so happens, and we don't see it yet at this point in the story, as we're reading Ruth, we have to kind of read further in Scripture to get this connection. This just happens to be the most important family that's ever existed in the entire world. Why would one family be more important than any other family? Because from this family the Messiah is going to be born one day. He is choosing to enter the world through the descendants of this family that's in focus in this particular story. And for those who are taking notes, we won't turn and read it, but you can look in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, the beginning portion of what Matthew describes as the genealogical record of Jesus, tracing back where his family line came from and how it developed. And you'll see that the key characters that are in this story, there are many important characters in the book of Ruth, but the two most important ones are going to be Boaz and Ruth. And uh, those two are mentioned 
directly and specifically in Matthew's genealogical record as leading to the entrance of Christ into the world. And uh, that's also mentioned, by the way, in Luke's account of the genealogy of Jesus, which is in Luke chapter 3, verse 32. So that's the number one reason, the first reason to understand about why Ruth is in the Bible, which is that it's the story of a single family and God at work in that single most important family. Second, Ruth, the entire book of Ruth, is a story of friendship. And it highlights for us how God can work and does work through very important spiritual friendships in our lives. The story is going to really unfold here in chapter 1, as I just read through, to highlight one particular friendship, which is between Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and how that friendship is going to become a bonded, lifelong friendship. They're never going to leave each other's side because they are so close and connected. And God is at work in that friendship. Um, I don't know your personal stories in terms of who you're friends with and who you're not friends with. But I do want to let you know that as God is at work in your life, he will bring at his perfect timing, he will bring special friendships into your life. It's important for you to recognize when those special friendships form. And what makes a friendship special is that not just you happen to share the same thing that your friend likes, you happen to, to you know, have a hobby that you share together, an activity that you share together. Those things are fine and those friendships are fine and there's nothing wrong with having friendship on that basis. But the greatest, deepest, most important friendships in your life will be a friendship that shares the most important thing in your life, which is your connection to your relationship with the Lord. And when you share that at that deep spiritual level with a true and special friend, that's something that will change your life for the better and for the fulfillment of God's purposes in your life. The third reason why the book of Ruth is especially important in terms of just considering the question, There are 66 books in the Bible. Ruth is just one of 66, but why did God include Ruth among the 66 books? And these five reasons point to that. The third reason is that God is, in the telling of this story, is going to reveal his heart for those who are apparently outside of his awareness and his concerns. What I mean by that is that through All of the Bible up until this point in the book of Ruth, the primary focus has been on God's chosen people who were those that descended from Abraham. But in this story, Ruth is going to be in the spotlight and she did not descend from Abraham in that way. She is outside of the covenant people of Israel. She is a Moabitess and she is a Gentile woman. And the Israelites tended to view those who were outside of covenant relationship with the Lord as outside of the Lord's concerns. But we're going to see that the Lord has a deep concern in his heart for Ruth. He has chosen her for a special purpose. She is going to be, as we trace it back in the line of descent, she's going to be the great, 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 great grandmother of the Lord Jesus himself. 
And so she has a very special purpose in God's plan. And so we're going to see that God goes out of his way to include Ruth in his saving and redeeming plan. And he is going to bring this Gentile into covenant relationship with himself. And it shows us just how far God will go to save one person that he has a special purpose and a special plan for. The fourth reason why Ruth is important in our study of God's word is it really displays the principle of what we call the sovereignty of God. Now, the sovereignty of God simply means that God is really in charge of everything and everyone. God sits on a throne in heaven, and he's not just twiddling his thumbs up there. He is absolutely in charge of everything and everyone. Now, there are times as we watch events unfold in the world around us that it doesn't become obvious and apparent how God is at work in all of the circumstances that we see around us. But the book of Ruth shows us the depth, the extent, the degree to which God really is in charge of our lives and he will accomplish his purpose, the things that are in his heart for us. Uh, if you want, for that principle, if you want to link Proverbs 16, verse 9, as a general principle, which simply tells us that a man's mind will plan his way, but the Lord will direct his steps. The idea is that The Lord is not saying to us in that passage that it's wrong to make plans in your life. It's actually a good and wise thing to make plans in your life. But as you make your plans, you should also recognize that sometimes your plan is not in agreement with God's plan. And if there's ever a disagreement between your plan and God's plan, whose plan do you think is going to get interrupted and changed? It's not going to be the Lord's plan. It's going to be yours. So you can make your plans, and you should, but if the Lord interrupts and changes your plans in ways that you hadn't anticipated or hadn't planned, then what does your heart do in reaction and response to the changes the Lord is bringing about in your life for his purpose? And then the fifth and final reason that Ruth is in the Bible, and the most important one of this list of five reasons, is that the story of Boaz and Ruth plays a very special role in what we call in Bible study Old Testament types. T-Y-P-E. Old Testament types. And what a type is in, in theology is simply it's a person, a thing, or an event that in some way points forward to the story of Christ. It's not the story of Christ but it's pointing forward to the story of Christ and kind of giving us a a preview of what God will one day do in the Son of God entering into this world. Now, the particular type that the story of Boaz and Ruth um, display for us is the principle of what was called in the Old Testament time period the story of the, the principle of the kinsman redeemer. Now, I'm not going to explain that right up front. I'll save that for when we get to that portion of our study. But this is a, 
a, a special display of the saving and redeeming love of God for his people that he intends to save. All right, so that's our introduction or overview. Let's go ahead and dig into our study, and we're going to look first at the first five verses, Naomi in Moab. Now, we've already read the section, so I won't reread it. Let me just give you the the main points that we're meant to, to capture and understand from these first five verses. So we've already mentioned this takes place during the days of the judges, and there's a very challenging and difficult circumstance. The story, if you look at the maps that I handed out to you, the story actually starts in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was a small town, really a village, that was just south of the city of Jerusalem. And in that area, this is in the region in ancient Israel where the tribe of Judah had settled after their entrance into the promised land. You remember there were 12 tribes of Israel and each one was given their own land to settle in the promised land. So the promised land was divided into 12 segments or 12 sections and each tribe got one section. So Judah was assigned the portion where the city of Jerusalem would be established and of course where this smaller town of Bethlehem just south of Jerusalem was established. But there's a problem going on here at this time during the time of the judges. And the problem was, as it's described here, there was in verse 1 a famine in the land. Now, none of you have ever personally experienced what's being described here. And be thankful for that. Maybe in your future you will have an experience of this, but at this present moment of your life, your young lives, and I've lived a lot longer than you, I've never experienced this. A famine is literally where there is no food available to eat. So when we get hungry now in our culture, in our society, you're in your house and you're feeling hungry. What do you tend to do when you feel hungry? One, you might, you might say to your mom, Mom, I'm hungry. You know, I need something to eat. Or maybe you have the freedom in your household to go into the kitchen and to scrounge around in the cupboards or look in the the refrigerator. Generally speaking, if you're hungry, there's food available for you and always has been every moment of your life. It doesn't mean you're eating every moment of your life, but it means you've never not had food available to you. Now, famine, as it's described here, is so severe and so serious that literally there were households in Judah, and these are the covenant people of God, households in Judah that had no food at all in their homes. They were starving to death. Now, why in the world would God's people be starving to death when God has made so many promises throughout his word? that he would always faithfully provide at least the minimum of what his people need to live and to thrive. And God had promised that he would provide for his people in that way. And yet his people in Judah here are in the midst of a famine. So the question is, why would there be a famine? So we need to understand other portions of God's word in order to understand why there was a famine going on. I'm going to give you two portions 
from other passages of Scripture. I won't turn there and read them for the sake of our time, but I want you to understand the backstory of what's going on and why there is a famine in the land. So the two portions that you should check into are Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15, and really the several verses right after verse 15 as well. But 28.15 is the most important. I'll describe that in a moment. And then in the book of Judges, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Remember, the events of the book of Judges are happening at the same time as the events of the book of Ruth. All right, so Deuteronomy 28 is a, a portion from the laws of Moses, the law of God. And it's a, it's a very important chapter in the law of God, which describes for us God's promises. And there are two categories of his promises that he makes to his people in Deuteronomy 28. One is he promises to bless them. And then starting in verse 15, he promises to curse them. Now, if God's making a promise to you, which, would, which of those two options would you prefer that God makes a promise to you? Would you rather God promise to bless you, or would you rather God promise to curse you? I'm asking. Most of the folks here don't seem to care whether they're blessed or cursed. All right, so if it's me, and God's giving me the option which is exactly what he does in Deuteronomy 28 for all of his people. If he gives me the option and says, Tim, if you will only live this way, I promise I will always bless you. But I'm going to warn you that if you choose to live this other way, then I promise I will curse you. And you will pay the price of the consequences of your bad behavior. And that's what unfolds in Deuteronomy 28. God promising, yes, he promised, I will provide for my people. I will make sure they never go hungry, was one of the promises that God made to his people in the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy 28. But the problem was, in the book of Judges, as I've already described, this was a time where there was no king in Israel, And every man was doing what was right in his own eyes, meaning they weren't doing what was right in the Lord's eyes, generally speaking. There were a few exceptions where people were remaining faithful to the Lord, but those were exceptional cases. And so as the people drifted from the Lord, they drifted away from holiness and away from righteousness and away from wisdom. And they drifted into sin and unrighteousness, and foolishness. And now they are experiencing the consequences of their own bad behavior. The famine didn't just happen. This is not, and by the way, why would a famine happen? In the ancient world, people, generally speaking, got their food from planting crops and harvesting those crops. What's the one essential thing? Actually, there are two. What's the essential thing about planting and growing crops. You need a seed, but you also need water in order for that seed to grow. You can plant the best seed in the world, in the best land in the world, and if there's no water ever applied to that seed, that seed will not grow and there will be no harvest. And so what would happen in times of famine is the Lord would withhold rain. So first there would be a drought where there's no rain, and then there would be no growth of the crops 
and no food that would be produced and the famine would be the result. So that's what's going on. That's the backstory of what's happening. Now, why is that important for us to understand? Because Elimelech, who is the head of the household, he's married to Naomi, who's one of our first most important characters. But Elimelech is the leader. He's the head of the household. And he is experiencing famine in the land and he does not have anything to eat himself or to provide for his family. And so he makes a decision. What's the decision he makes? I'm going to pack up my family and we're going to move and we're going to go find some food somewhere else because there's no food here. And so where they leave, they leave Bethlehem and they travel all the way to Moab. And if you want to, uh, if you want to reference your map, what you'll see here is... Uh, On the left side of the map, I've circled Bethlehem and I've circled the route or I've, I've drawn the route of their travel from Bethlehem all the way to Moab. And this is approximately a 75 mile journey, approximately 75 miles. How would they get from Bethlehem to Moab? They would walk. It wasn't easy. It was hard going, I would imagine. Um, There's some areas in between those two locations that were not pleasant and were not uh, safe. But they made the journey and they walked that 75 miles. We don't know how long it took, but it took some uh, amount of time, I would imagine. And they finally arrive in Moab. And what do they find in Moab that they didn't have in Judah? They find food. And so they make the decision to stay there. And they settle down there, and eventually we're told in this first section that they remained in this new location of Moab for 10 years. Now, there's a word which describes in Elimelech's original decision, his intention was just to sojourn in Moab, which means a short stay. He was going to find some food, and he was hoping that the, the drought would end and that he would be able to return back to their home in Bethlehem, but apparently the circumstance didn't change for some extended period of time, and they ended up remaining there for some 10 years. And Elimelech never makes it back to Bethlehem. He dies in Moab. We're not told the circumstances of his death, so we don't want to read into the story what the Lord has not revealed, but he dies disconnected and away from the promised land where God had led his people. And I think there's at least a hint there about the decision he had made to move. Now, when he dies, who becomes the head of the household and who becomes the decision maker in this family? The two sons of Elimelech, who are mentioned in the story, Malon and um, uh, Chilion, we don't know which of the two was the the uh, eldest son, so the eldest son would typically or, or usually take the greatest portion of the lead. But both sons apparently made the same decision. We're, we're not given the conversation that led to their decision. But as soon as their father died, these two sons were now responsible for the family. And they had the option to do what at that point? To pack up and move back to Bethlehem. They instead decide to remain there in Moab and they choose for themselves because when they had made the journey, they were unmarried young men and they choose to stay in Moab and they marry women of Moab. 
and settle down there, apparently with the intention of never leaving. This is their new permanent home. Now, what happens next in the story is the two sons, Malon and uh, Chilion, also die. Now, there are two details connected to the story of their death that give us a hint, kind of like the hint about Elimelech. One is they both die, both of these sons die young. Why do we know they die young? Their ages are not given here, but their mother outlives them. And that sometimes will happen in a family where a parent will outlive a child, but it's not the ideal way that family progression should develop. Uh, It's always best for children to outlive their parents rather than parents to outlive their children. So they die young. One of the things that the Lord had promised his people is, if you will follow my ways, I will grant you a long life. And so these two young men die young. It's a hint that they had not been following the right ways of the Lord in the way that they should have. The other thing that's obvious, uh, that is noticeable, is they die what we call childless. So they had married two women of Moab, but they had not produced any children at the point of their death. And so the Lord had promised that he would bless his people with a full quiver of children, a full house of children. And yet these men, these young men, die young and they die childless. Both, I think, are hints that their hearts were not in a right place with the Lord at the point of their death. Now, what could possibly have been wrong about their lives before the Lord that would have led to the Lord ending their lives, what we would call at an early stage or prematurely? Well, the first and most important thing is who they chose to marry. Now, for some, even some Christians nowadays, it doesn't seem to be that important of a consideration or a concern, but all through God's word from beginning to end, he tells us that one of the most important decisions we can ever make in life is who we choose to marry. And in that decision, there are a lot of factors that you should take into account. You know, are we, are we a good fit for each other? Do we get along with each other? Uh, but there is one consideration that matters more than anything else in your decision of who to marry. And that is, what is the relationship between the person I'm going to marry and the Lord? Do they have a true saving relationship with the Lord? And so these two young men married two women of Moab who did not know the Lord and were not in a saving relationship with the Lord. And in doing that, they violated principles that God had revealed to his people through his law. Let me give you two two passages. We won't turn and read them, but for those who are taking notes and you want to to uh, connect these dots later on your own. The first is uh, from the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And then at a later time in Israel's history, we have that principle on display in the events of the book of Ezra, chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. God was not so much concerned that the Israelite young men were marrying a woman of Moab He was more concerned with 
what those women of Moab's heart's relationship with the Lord was. The concern was spiritually mixed marriages. Not physically mixed, like, okay, they're from Moab, I'm from Israel, I can't possibly marry them. How do we know that that's not really the Lord's concern? Later in the book, the Lord leads Boaz to marry Ruth, who is a Moabitess. And it's the Lord's purpose for them to marry, and the Lord blesses their marriage. Why? Because at that later time in the story, Ruth has come to know the Lord. And she is as committed to the Lord as Boaz is. And so God blesses their relationship, even though she was first born in the land of Moab and born among a people that worshipped other gods. But by that point, she has come to know the Lord. But at this point, at the beginning of the story, uh, the two sons of Naomi, Malon and Chilion, married women that did not know the Lord and were not committed to the Lord. And so the Lord here clearly has judged them and they die as I say young and childless now as a result of their death it leaves Ruth and um, and Orpah and Naomi the three women that are in view in this chapter it leaves them in a very difficult circumstance in the ancient world generally speaking the way women were supported was by their husbands or their fathers And in this circumstance, these three women are left without any support. And it wasn't like they could just go out and get a job. Or they could go down to the local social security office and apply for government assistance. These women were left what we would call destitute, with no means of support whatsoever. And so Naomi um, has the idea that it's now time to move back to Bethlehem to move back to her family heritage, her family background, to move back to the covenant people of the Lord. And while she and the other uh, daughters-in-law were out in the fields of Moab, most likely gleaning grain so that they, and we'll talk more about gleaning when we get to chapter two, but basically they're, they're harvesting some grain from those in Moab that would allow them to do so just so that they could survive. She hears from other people in the field that news has traveled all the way from Judah that the Lord has has lifted the famine and has once again blessed his people with rain and he's once again blessed his people with, with food. And so she has the idea, it's now time for me to move back to Bethlehem. So she starts out on a journey back to Bethlehem. And what's interesting is, both of her daughters-in-law are journeying with her. They decide to go along with her. And they're going to, to go to this new land with the hope that they'll, there'll be food and there'll be provision for them there. But soon after starting on the journey, and again, it's a long journey, 75 miles. We don't know how far along the road they got before this conversation happened. But it occurs to Naomi that these two young women that are her daughters-in-law, and, and we see in the chapter She has a good relationship with them. They're good young women, and she's a good older woman, and they have a close and connected relationship, all three of them. But out of concern for them, she knows it's not going to be easy for them in Bethlehem. Why? Because they're outsiders. They belong to the Moabites. They're they're not from the the covenant people of the Lord. They're not from Judah. Um, They might not be welcomed. They might not be embraced by the people of the Lord in Bethlehem. And so she makes the decision to speak to her daughters-in-law and to try to convince them 
that it would be in their best interest to stay in Moab because they would be among their people. And she even instructs them, why don't you go back to your mother's home? Wherever your family is, go back to your family where you came from. And she encourages them to get remarried, which would be the normal thing for a widow in those days to consider doing if the widow was a younger widow like these two young women are. Now, Naomi at this point even pronounces a blessing on her daughters-in-law, which tells us that these are both good young women and deserving of the blessing of the Lord in that sense because of how well they've treated their husbands who had died and how well they've treated Naomi uh, since their death. The blessing that Naomi pronounces on them is, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, that the dead is referring to their husbands. And the Lord grant you rest, each of you in the house of her husband. That is the hint that she's encouraging them to stay in Moab and get remarried to some man of Moab. And at that point, she kisses them, which is an expression of the close, bonded, connected, good relationship that they share. And together, they lift up their voices and weep. But interestingly, both of these young women decide, you know what? We value our relationship with Naomi so much that we don't want to lose that connection. Let's go ahead and go with her in spite of the, the possible difficulties we may encounter living in Bethlehem. It's worth it so that we, the three of us can stay connected together. And so they insist, no, Naomi, we will return with you to your people. And Naomi insisted at this point and emphasized the problem with their future prospects. Meaning, she wants these young women to get remarried, but she understands that it may be difficult because if they get to Bethlehem, none of the men of Bethlehem, if they're going to obey the Lord and follow the Lord's principles, none of the men of Bethlehem should ask either of these young Moabite women to marry them. And so she's looking at the possibility that if they come with me, they're going to remain widows for the rest of their life. They're going to have a hard and difficult life ahead of them. And so she tells them a second time, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? And then this interesting line where she says to them, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? So this is a reference. This isn't as weird as it first sounds as we read it in our modern ears. There was a law in the law of God. And let me give you the address. You can look it up in your own time. It's found in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. And it was called, uh, theologically, Leverate Marriage. That's L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. Leverate Marriage. And this was a principle that God had established among his people, that if a person in a family, a large extended family, if a man died and and left his wife as a widow, and she was young enough to be remarried, that his brother should then accept responsibility for her, and he should cover her, and he should marry her and provide a child for her, but that the first child born would be considered the son, not of the brother, but the son of the man who had died, so that his family line would not be snuffed out 
in the history of Israel. It was God's way of providing that every family line would be extended and would continue on into the future. And so she's really referring to that law and saying, look, in this circumstance, I can't provide a brother of the of the of the sons who have died. I can't do that for you. I'm too old. Even she goes on to say, even if someone were to ask me to marry them tonight and I was to start the process of giving birth to a a, a new son and raising them, what are you going to do? Are you going to wait around for 20 years for that young man to grow up and and, uh, eventually marry you? It's just too much. It's too long. You shouldn't wait. You need to go back to your to your homes. You need to go back to your family. You need to go back to your people and be remarried in that way. Now, at this point, we get a little insight into what's going on in Naomi's heart. I want you to understand uh, the good and the bad about what's going on with Naomi. There's a little bit of a mixture here in her present experience and the present perspective and attitude of her heart. Naomi's had a hard time. She's gone through some very challenging and difficult circumstances. Later at the end of chapter 1, we find out her perspective is when they had left Bethlehem as she was following her husband Elimelech, she left Bethlehem and in her perspective, other than the famine that they were dealing with, her life was full and blessed. She had a, a good husband. She had two young sons. She was blessed by the Lord and, and rejoicing in the Lord in spite of the famine circumstance. But her husband has died. He led them to a foreign land among a foreign people in order to survive the famine. Her husband's died, and then her two sons that she was leaning on for her support have died, both of them, too young, prematurely, and now she's left destitute, and she's left in an exceptionally needy circumstance. And so what's happening here is she's, Naomi still believes in the Lord. She is faithful to the Lord. She hasn't turned away from the Lord. But at the same time, she has become bitter in her heart because of her difficult circumstances that she's passed through. She hasn't successfully guarded her heart from moving from joy to bitterness and remaining in that bitterness. So she is, at this point, thinking that the rest of her life, however long she lives, she doesn't know her future, the total number of her days, but in her perspective, her life is only going to be miserable from this point forward. And whether the Lord intends to bless her or not, she can't see that possible blessing of the Lord At this moment, all she can see is, my life is ruined, my life is miserable, and it's not going to change for the better. Now, the way she describes how she got here is she uses this phrase, it's exceedingly or exceptionally bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, that's a key phrase here in chapter 1, to describe Naomi's heart struggle at this moment. Now, what does that mean, the, the hand of the Lord had gone out against her? That's a, that's a way of describing what we call theologically 
the judgment of the Lord in a circumstance in this world. Now, the Bible teaches us, in spite of what even some in the, in the Christian community want to believe today, the Lord remains and always has been and always will be a God of judgment. It's not the only thing God does. God, God does more than judge. But he absolutely does judge people in this world. And what that simply means is God holds people accountable for living according to his standards, not their own standards. And when people turn away from the ways of the Lord and disregard him and disobey him, they are welcoming the consequences of bad circumstances in their life to teach them the lesson that it's never good, it's never right, and it's never wise to turn away from the Lord. That's what it means to be judged by the Lord. So when she says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, she is viewing herself as the target of the Lord's judgment. The question you and I are meant to ask at this point in the story is, is she seeing what's happened to her from the right spiritual perspective. The question we need to ask is, is Naomi actually being targeted by the Lord for judgment? Which would imply what? If she was being judged by the Lord, then what must have happened prior to that judgment is she must have committed some serious sin. Because the Lord never judges unless serious sin causes him to need to judge in that circumstance. So is there any hint anywhere in chapter 1 where Naomi is the primary character and she's the one most in focus? Is there any verse anywhere in chapter 1 that hints for us, like we saw hints about Elimelech. We saw hints about her sons, Malon and Chilion. Do we see any hint in this part of the story that Naomi has sinned in some serious way against the Lord and that's why the Lord has taken her husband from her and taken her two sons from her and left her destitute in a foreign land. The answer is there are no hints that Naomi has sinned. In fact, what's interesting is the only sin Naomi actually commits in chapter 1 is a sin of her perspective. It's a sin of her wrongly interpreting the events of her life and missing out on the greater blessing of seeing what the Lord is doing in this situation. So there probably are some people that are sinning in chapter 1. But the people that are sinning are the people in charge, the people making the decisions. It was never Naomi's decision to move to Moab. Whose decision was it? Elimelech, her husband. And then when Elimelech died, the authority doesn't go to Naomi. The authority goes to her two sons, and they make the decision to settle down there, to stay there for 10 years, and to marry women of Moab. Naomi's not responsible for any of that. So Naomi doesn't sin in chapter 1 until she speaks these words. And it's not the worst kind of sin, but it is a sin, the sin of bitterness and holding bitterness in your heart and misunderstanding what the Lord is doing and viewing yourself as a victim of the Lord is something that does undermine the relationship in your heart that you have with the Lord. It's hard to love someone if you think that they are victimizing you and you haven't really deserved what they've done to you. 
She doesn't really believe that she deserves to have her husband taken from her or her sons taken from her. And yet, in her mind, the Lord has done that, and he's done that as a judgment against her. Now, the reality is, Naomi is experiencing the judgment of the Lord, but the judgment of the Lord is not against her. And this is very difficult to divide those two principles and to keep them in different categories in our understanding. So if the Lord is judging in chapter 1, and he is, he's judging Elimelech, and he's judging Malon, and he's judging Chilean, who is going to be affected by that judgment other than just those three men? Well, their wives, the three men's wives are going to be affected, and the two sons' mother is going to be affected. And so when the Lord does bring judgment upon one person, it has reverberating effects on people that live close to them and are connected to them. How many of you have ever taken a stone and thrown it into a lake and watched the ripples that come from that stone and travel all the way throughout that water? So there is an effect when one person is judged and it usually affects the people closest to them. And so Naomi is experiencing the circumstances of judgment but she's not the reason for that judgment. Had she been able to make that differentiation, had she been able to see, okay, I understand why the Lord judged my husband. I understand why the Lord even judged my sons. They were not faithful to all of the laws of God. It would have helped her heart to not become embittered toward the Lord, viewing herself as the Lord has judged me unrighteously, which is in essence, she doesn't say the words, but it's in essence what she's feeling in this circumstance. Now, um, at this point, we're still at the beginning of the journey back to Bethlehem, and she's still trying to talk her daughters out of her daughters-in-law out of out of coming with her, and she has succeeded in talking one of the two daughters-in-law in coming all the way to Bethlehem with her, and so Orpah, one of the two daughters-in-law. Uh, realizes it's in her best interest to stay with her family, her mother, and to likely remarry uh, some man of Moab. And so Orpah, because she has a close and connected relationship with Naomi, she kisses her mother-in-law, and this is what we would call a farewell kiss. This is a kiss of, we will likely never see each other this side of death. And the reality is they never did see each other again because Naomi never traveled back to Moab and Orpah never traveled to um, Bethlehem. So this is the last time these two women see each other. So this is what we would call a goodbye or a farewell farewell kiss. But Ruth makes a different decision than Orpah. Orpah at this point leaves and she's heading back to her mother's home. But instead, Ruth is described as clinging to Naomi. And it's a strong word that's used here. It's a word that's used all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 2 when the Lord first brought Adam and Eve together and he described that their relationship was going to be a relationship where the man would leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. It's it's a, a term that describes a, a, a desire to stay close and connected to another person so much so that you grab hold of him and it's kind of like I'm never letting you go and so Ruth 
uh, clings to Naomi. She refuses to leave her side. But Naomi's still concerned about Ruth. She's still concerned that, you know, I, I'm sure she appreciated that, that Ruth was, was so committed to staying with her. And it certainly would make Naomi's journey back to Bethlehem easier. Remember, this is a, a 75-mile walk, and this is not like a stroll on the sidewalk in a nice town. This is through the wilderness. 75-mile walk, and if Ruth leaves, like Orpah did, what's Naomi going to have to do? She's going to have to make this journey all by herself as an older woman, walking 75 miles through the wilderness on her own. So it would be to her advantage if Ruth comes with her, but this is one of the good characteristics of Naomi. In spite of her bitterness about her circumstances, she's a loving and caring woman who cares about her daughter-in-law and puts her daughter-in-law's best interest above her own and once more tries to talk Ruth out of staying with her. And yet uh, Ruth refuses. And Naomi, in her effort to try to talk her out of it, compares her decision with the decision of her um, her uh, other daughter-in-law, who was Orpah. And she says this, she has gone, she's speaking about Orpah, she has gone back to her people, the Moabites, and she has gone back to her gods. Now let me link you a, a passage here, uh, Numbers 21-29, I'll let you look that up in your own time. But this is a hint that as good of a young woman and a daughter-in-law as Orpah was, in her heart, she never came to know the Lord. And so it was only right for Naomi to, to direct Orpah back to her own people and back to the gods that she was committed to. But that's not the same as what's going on in Ruth's heart. Ruth has already had a change of heart in the most deep and important way. She has had a saving change of heart. And Ruth has already come to know the Lord. And so Ruth refuses. And what we see here is God's sovereignty that I mentioned in the introduction. God is at work here in the difference between the choices of Orpah and Ruth. They're both Moabite young women, but God is working in one of their hearts in a different way than he's working in the heart of the other. And this is the last we hear of Orpah. She goes back to Moab and she lives her life. We don't know what happens to her after this. But God has a special purpose and a special plan for this other young Moabite woman named Ruth. And so God works in her heart to lead her to the decision that no matter what, I am not leaving your side, Naomi. And so Ruth's response is really kind of a stubborn-hearted response. But it's what I'm going to call a good stubborn, a godly stubborn. So um, every single one of us at some moment in our life or another has been stubborn. There's good ways to be stubborn and there's bad ways to be stubborn. You never want to be stubborn in the bad way, which is being stubborn against what the Lord wants you to do. But you do want to learn how to be stubborn toward doing the right things that the Lord wants you to do, that which is pleasing in his sight and that which honors him. And that's what she does here. She refuses all of the efforts of Naomi to talk her out of going. And she declares a lifelong commitment to Naomi and a lifelong commitment to the Lord. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where you go, I will go. 
Now she already knows where they're going, but basically she's saying wherever the future leads us, we're going to go and experience that together. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Now this is, this is a big declaration. Essentially what Ruth is saying when she says your people will be my people is she says, I no longer see myself as a Moabite. I was born a Moabite. I was raised a Moabite. My family is Moabite. But I am now of the tribe of Judah because you're of the tribe of Judah. I identify with the people of God, not with the people of Moab. And even more important than that declaration, her next statement, your God shall be my God. And so she makes what we call a declaration of faith in the one true and living God. Now the Moabites had their own set of gods. One of which, I gave you the, the, um, the address for it. You'll, you find that one in Numbers 21-29. One of the gods that the Moabites worshipped was a god by the name of, and you understand these, these gods didn't actually exist, but in the imagination of the Moabites they did, and they, they worshipped them and, and attempted to follow them. One of their gods was a god by the name of Chemosh. And Chemosh was a particularly wicked false god to worship because in the Moabites' understanding, in order to worship Chemosh, they would even, the Moabites would even occasionally sacrifice their own children, meaning it would be like Mr. Bulwer taking his youngest child and killing his youngest child to offer that child as a sacrifice to the false god of Chemosh. That's how wicked the, the worship that they practiced actually was. And so when Ruth says to Naomi, your God, the one true and living God, when, you're, when I'm saying your God will be my God, she is making a statement of faith and disconnecting from the God she was raised to worship and connecting by faith, saving faith, in the God that rules over Naomi's life. And then she says, where you die, I will die, meaning I'm never coming back to Moab. I'm leaving with you, and I know this is, I'm sitting, Orpah, her, her, the other daughter-in-law, she kissed Naomi goodbye and went back to Moab. Ruth didn't kiss Naomi goodbye, she kissed Moab goodbye, and permanently disconnected from that land in order to identify not just with Naomi, but with the Lord over Naomi's life and with the people and the land where Naomi was traveling. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And then she adds this statement, Ruth does, May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Essentially what she's doing here is she's taking an oath before the Lord. And she's making herself accountable to the Lord. And she uses the name of the Lord here in this verse. It's what we call the covenant name of the Lord. The Lord had revealed himself as God to the entire world, but as Lord to his covenant people. And here she is recognizing, I am entering into a covenant relationship with the Lord, and I'm making myself for the rest of my life accountable to him and to the promise I'm making to you today. So at this point, Naomi realizes just how serious Ruth is. She stops trying to talk her out of it. 
um, she embraces uh, Ruth's uh, companionship on the journey home, and they make the long 75-mile walk successfully back to Bethlehem. And I think we see something of the Lord's sovereignty in that as well. It would be far more difficult for two women alone to make that journey than it was for the entire family with the three men protecting them to make the original journey that they had made. So when they get back to Bethlehem, this is our last section, verses 19 through 22. It's a short section, arrival in Bethlehem. Um, The whole town, remember it's, Bethlehem is a small town. And we don't live in a small town here. If someone traveled here from some other location that had come from here and they'd been gone for 10 years and they arrived back, nothing would happen like what happened here because it's such a big town and there's so many people coming and going. People just lose track of all the stuff that happens. But in a small town, when something like this happens, we, we say news travels fast. The word gets out. And so it describes for us that the whole town was stirred. Literally, the whole town was in an uproar when here come Naomi and Ruth walking into town. And the women of the town who previously had known Naomi, they greet her, but they greet her with an unusual greeting. Is this Naomi? Obviously, she's aged in 10 years. She's a little bit different looking than she was before. But what also is noticeable is how many of them greet Ruth when they arrive in Bethlehem? How many of the women of Bethlehem greet Ruth? They greet Naomi. They don't even mention Ruth. They completely ignore her and disregard her. Why? Because she's an outsider. And they do not know that Ruth has come to know the Lord and has a true spiritual relationship with the Lord like they are supposed to. All they know is, that's an outsider. We're just going to disregard her. We're going to ignore her. And this is part of why Naomi was concerned to bring these young women back to Bethlehem. Now, at this point, they ask Naomi the question, is this Naomi? And Naomi has a very interesting and honest response, but it's not a healthy response. So, is it good to be honest? Yes. It's a good quality in your communication with people to always be honest. But is it good to be unhealthy in your communication? I'm talking about spiritually unhealthy. No. So again, we see a mixture of what's going on in Naomi's heart here. She says this to them. Do not call me Naomi. Now, that's kind of unusual because that's her name, right? Why does she say, do not call me Naomi? Because in Bible days, names had special meanings. Now, even all of your names have their own special meanings. But in our culture, we don't focus on the meaning of our names in the same way that they did in ancient Israel. What was the meaning of the name Naomi? What does that name mean? It meant in Hebrew simply this, pleasant delight. It's describing a circumstance that everybody wants to experience. So when you greet Naomi, you're greeting, this is the arrival of someone that's pleasant and someone that's delightful. And Naomi says to these women that have greeted her, don't call me pleasant. Don't call me delightful because I'm not feeling very pleasant and I'm not feeling very delightful in this present moment of my life. My life is ruined and I'm miserable. So she tells them to call her by a new name. The new name is, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara instead. 
Now this is a, an important word from the, the Exodus story of the children of Israel passing through the wilderness. At one point, the Lord led his people to a, a location where there was water to drink when they were exceptionally thirsty, but there was a problem with the water. The water was bitter, and the water was dangerous for them to drink, and it could not be drunk until the Lord did a miracle to uh, transform the water into drinkable, healthy water. And so Naomi says, don't call me pleasant, don't call me delightful, call me bitter. That's what my life is now. So I really need a new name because my life is so miserable. Can you imagine? You're you're in a relationship with people, these, these women that have greeted her, and she's saying, this is my life story now. I am a bitter, miserable person, and that's how you should think of me every time you think of me every time you talk to me, every time you interact, me, interact with me, think of me as a bitter, miserable person. Now, is that a healthy spiritual perspective for a person that, that knows the Lord, should love the Lord, should be grateful to the Lord? No, that's not a particularly healthy perspective. Now, thankfully, Naomi's not going to, that's not the end of her story. We're going to see that the Lord is going to reveal some things to Naomi as we continue through the story here. And she's going to get to a healthier place. But at this moment, she's really, really struggling. She says, Do not call me, Naomi, call me Mara, bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? What is the principle that Naomi is missing at this point in her life? So Paul the Apostle writes out the principle for us, but she should have understood this concept even back then. You'll find in Romans 8.28 what Naomi was missing. We know, Paul says, that all things in a believer's life, all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So, did Naomi belong to the Lord? Yes. Did she love the Lord? Yes. So, how should she have understood the, yes, difficult, yes, tragic things that happened to her, the loss of her husband, the loss of her sons. What she should never have lost sight of was, all these things must, in some way that I don't yet see and understand, be working together for my good and for a greater purpose to be fulfilled. I don't see how all of the dots connect yet. I don't understand how this is going to end up as a good thing. But I believe that it will because the Lord promises that he's at work in all of the circumstances of my life because I love him and I belong to him. Now later, this exact set of circumstances is going to be revealed as the way that the Lord brings Ruth to Bethlehem. And as the way that the Lord connects Ruth to Boaz. And as the way that they eventually, through their descendants, lead to the entrance of the Messiah into the world. Can you imagine if Naomi could have just understood that much? How that might have changed her heart's perspective about the difficulties that she was experiencing. I I can endure this because the Lord has something so amazing planned for why I had to go through these experiences. But at this point, she doesn't see in faith 
and in hope and in confidence in the Lord. She doesn't see what the Lord can and will do in the future. All she sees is things are really, really miserable right now. So I'm really miserable and the Lord has it out for me. And, and things can't possibly get better. So one last detail and we'll end our study here. And that is, they arrive back in Bethlehem at a specific moment. And it's a key moment. It's a special moment. It's an important moment. What moment do they arrive back in Bethlehem? At the time of the harvest. Which is good in more than one way. One, food is waiting as they arrive. And they have been starving to death. So that's a blessing of the Lord. That they arrived at the time of the harvest. But two... It's going to be, as we'll see in the next chapter, the time of the harvest that the Lord is going to use to connect Ruth's life with Boaz's life because that's what he's purposed. That's what he's planned. He had planned it back before when they were still in Moab, but he brings them at the exact right moment so that those plans can unfold and be fulfilled. All right, we'll stop our study there today. And, Lord willing, we'll pick back up next week with chapter 2.